and welcome to another summer edition of Locked in Science. I'm Stu and on this week's show I will be talking to Angela Patterson about her work with Australian Indigenous grasses and their potential use in agriculture and Chris will be talking to quantum physicist Kyla Adams about quantum vortices in liquids. Stay tuned. Lost in Science does go out all over the country and lots of people do live in the country as well. And one of the big industries in Australia is agriculture and the wheat and sheep and cattle and all those industries that we rely on for our agricultural income in Australia pretty much all imported by Europeans a little bit over 200 years ago. But there was obviously a lot of people living here before then who were also eating and living off the land as well. And with me today, I've got Dr. Angela Patterson, who is from the University of Sydney, from their Narrabri campus, who has been looking into Australian Indigenous plant species, which might hold some potential for being agricultural crops in the future. Thanks for joining us on Lost in Science, Angela. Thanks, Stu. Excited to be here. So as I was saying, uh, you know, Australia does have the reputation of being a very agricultural nation, certainly since European settlement. And once they discovered the, the miracle of superphosphate, it became highly productive and very viable to be farmers in Australia. But globally speaking, we've got four major staple crops. We've got our potatoes, we've got our corn, we've got our wheat, and we've got our rice, none of which are from Australia, and yet we grow a lot of, certainly a lot of wheat and rice in Australia. Why don't we grow any Australian plants agriculturally? It's a really great question, Stu, and um, this is a journey I'm still learning. So I got trained in how to grow wheat, and I did lot, many years of study at uni in learning how to, to successfully grow introduced crops in Australian soils and Australian climates. But um, the more and more I read about and talk to traditional knowledge holders of the, the grasses that have been grown here for thousands of years and, and eaten just in bread and, and in food products, just like all around the world, the grains have been, um, the more I'm learning, gosh, we're crazy for not really looking into this more and, and talking more and developing these grains more for a modern market. So your, your background is in, in, I guess we could call it traditional agricultural crops in in wheat and I think chickpeas you were working on as well? Yeah, yep. So I, I studied in the big city and I took a job out at Narrabri uh, seven years ago. Okay, and you, you initially started off doing wheat and chickpea breeding out there. What were you trying to breed them to do? <laughs> uh, well, heat and drought tolerance. So okay. yeah, trying to improve the ability of um, wheat to do well when it's hot and dry and, and same for chickpeas using just traditional plant breeding um, and it's been fun and those crops are still very important and they're always going to be important for food security um, but it, but what we're looking at in the native grain project is um, talking to local aboriginal people here on Gomorrah country um, and then also around Australia and seeing how can we bring back the grains that are already heat tolerant and already drought tolerant, don't need any modification to be able to do that, and then incorporate it into our diets. So I guess um, you, you're kind of in the early stages of, of figuring out, you know, what's what's even edible, I guess, which by talking to people, you've been able to figure out what was 
eaten locally um, pre-European times. Um, but what, so how did you go about sort of, uh, what's the next step after figuring out, well, it's not going to kill us. What do we do then? Um, well, the first step, like you said, is, is figuring out. So it's a lot of eating. So it's a really good science project because <laughs> I'm required by my job to eat and eat freshly bred, freshly cooked over hot coals as many times as I can. So it's a great job from that respect. Um, so what, we, what we've done is collected as many grains that we know had previously been eaten and then ground them up to flour and then just, just tried. So um, we have... Johnny cake making days out on country. And then we also do stuff in the lab and um, taste, aroma, color, um, properties of the dough, like how, how hydrated it is and how well it rises or doesn't rise. Then also the nutritional properties as well. So there's a, there's a, a category of grains that are eaten and that might be, you know, dozens of species. And then there's categories of grain that are also easy to grow and edible. And then within that category, there's a few, maybe five or six that we think are going to be commercially viable. So they're easy to grow and they taste good. And economically, we can probably make it happen. And they're nutritious as well, presumably. Well, absolutely. And this is, comes because they're quite small seed, but they're very high in protein and micronutrients and they're all gluten-free. So, that, and that's that's an, uh, an interesting thing as well. So the, I guess the traditional ways of cooking with these grains, are they transferable to you know your your local bakery style of of making bread and that sort of other thing or would they be better suited for other kinds of cooking the the bread that we eat is a beautiful beautiful white fluffy loaves of bread or whether they're loaves or, or rolls or scrolls or whatever um the, the types of properties that make those foods are really unique to wheat um gluten is it wasn't a bad name, but it's actually really, really important in the way that it makes the bread perform like it does. So would native grains do well in a bakery loaf? Well, compare it to a gluten-free flour rather than compare it to a wheat is probably a more accurate comparison. So if anyone's gone to a supermarket recently or tried or eaten a gluten-free bread, you'll notice that it's usually heavier in texture um, and it, it, it doesn't kind of flop around in the same way. It doesn't kind of, it's not as spongy. Um, so that's closer to what um, a native grain would be. But usually native grains are also darker in colour as well. And that's because of the micronutrient content of the grains. Okay. So, I mean, I guess that's sort of further experimentation for the, uh, for the food scientists to have a look at. And I guess there's, there's also the marketing aspect as well, which is a whole different ball game, which, you know, I'm completely unqualified to, to, to comment on that as well. But um, one of the other things that I think I was interested in about um, a lot of the indigenous classes is that um, the, the wheat crops are botanically what we'd call an annual crop. They, they produce seed and then they die. But a lot of these native grasses are perennials and they keep coming back. You don't have to replant them all the time. Is that something you were specifically looking for? Um, or is that just kind of a side benefit of these grasses? Um, again, another great question. <laughs> You're hitting the nail on the head. Um, the, the grain system that's current, that historically has been here and we're currently researching is one that involves perennial crops. Um, and not only perennial, but also whole ecosystems worth of plants all existing in the same field. 
So not only is wheat an annual, which means that you harvest it once a year and then the fields bear for about six months and then another crop is planted. Um, these, these species not only perennial, but they also historically, they wouldn't only be grown on their own. They'd be grown with the legumes, with other grain species, with sedges, with herbs, with shrubs, all in the same hectare of land. And so that, that complex ecosystem um, is, it creates amazing environmental benefits. And the feedback that I've received from the Aboriginal communities, and I'm learning more and more as we go, which is just wonderful, is that it has very important cultural benefits as well. And if you take a plant out of its context and grow it um, in, a, in a commercial agricultural system where it's a monoculture fed with lots of fertilizers, you use chemicals for weed control, that might have economic benefits, um, but you don't get the same cultural or environmental benefits when you remove a plant from its ecosystem. So what our project is looking at is can we, instead of removing the native grains from the ecosystem and growing them like wheat, can we leave them in the ecosystem and find a way in the modern, using modern supply chains and modern markets to um, productively harvest and then process these in an economically viable way? Because there were really good reasons why wheat was domesticated and is now grown in monocultures, because it's much cheaper and more efficient. Um, so trying to go back and do it the, the historic way, the traditional way, sometimes feels like it's going in the wrong direction. But in many ways, the environmental benefits, cultural benefits, holistic health benefits, it really is the right direction. But it is really complicated. Certainly a lot more complicated than, than ploughing and planting and harvesting and, and weed control, which is pretty much what you do for, for growing wheat. Um, did, in your research, did you find much difference obviously between the different species that you looked at, but did you find much variation within the species of, of how productive they were or how, you know, how easy they were to harvest or any of those kind of, um, you know, practical uh, tasks that you need to do? Was there any, any, a lot of variation within the, the species that you looked at? Oh yeah, Absolutely. And as a, a plant breeder, my, I am just overwhelmed with excitement when I see the incredible variation that there is. I mean, part of my job before I did this was we would import lines from overseas that had genetic diversity on purpose and bring them to Australia and try and figure out which ones would do well in Australia because we needed more diversity in, it, in the introduced crops in Australia. But with these native grain crops, the diversity is all around me all the time and you, I know the listeners can't see this, but I'm talking to you from my office and my office is filled with little seed packets. It creates a big mess, but they're little seed packets of grain from what we call genotypes. So they're um, genetically different plants. Um, and if I see something really interesting um, in a field that, that we're allowed to collect from with both cultural and legal oversight, we're allowed to collect. Um, I'll, I'll take that, that seed head and I'll put it in a packet with a little label um, so that we can grow out the ones which have uh, better harvesting characteristics. They might be long heads or they might mature at the right time. They might have giant seed, um, um, potentially also better or worse nutritional characteristics as well, which you don't know until you start measuring them after harvest. Um, but yeah, the, the genetic diversity is incredible and it doesn't take much, um, I mean, anyway, you don't have to take much training before you can look across a field and go, that plant has interesting characteristics, that one has interesting characteristics. Um, we, we should look more into the genetic diversity of Australian native plants. And then I, I guess um, from, from a breeding point of view, then you could, you could start 
combining the the beneficial characteristics together and produce even even better plants yeah yeah it's kind of like uh, breeding plants is not really any different to breeding animals or whatever and most people know the story of a labradoodle you want to get the the nice gentle nature of a labrador crossed with the intelligence of a poodle to get a labradoodle and, and hopefully most of the offspring will be both intelligent but also gentle and lovable um but yeah obviously in that mix you get some that are a bit narky like a like a poodle and a bit dumb like a labrador so part, part of plant breeding is is you cross two plants and then you just select from the offspring and this sort of stuff is it's it's natural so just like you know breeding dogs it's, it doesn't require a lab it doesn't require injections and petri dishes and genetic modification it's just natural processes um and it's but it's the, hum the human input is to select the ones that you think are going to be beneficial and i think that's a really interesting thing that we should look more into over the next three to five years so you've you've tasted all of the different grasses and you've started collecting the uh the gene pool i guess what what's what's the next step for your program i guess um, well, the, the first and most important one is to, to make sure that everything that we do comes under the authority of the Aboriginal people on the land on which we're working. So the traditional knowledge holders have managed these um, for thousands of years. And so they've done their own versions of breeding and their own versions of land management um, and various versions of eating and sharing and, and um, all the cultural stories and song lines that go along with it. And that knowledge is so, so important. So the first step really is to, to come under that authority and then collaborate together going forward. Um, and that will inform a lot of things like the role of fire in these agricultural systems. So traditionally, um, the biomass was managed with fire, was burnt um, once a year, once every two or three years, depending if it's grasses or, or sedges, or once every 10 years, 20 years, whatever. Um, and so, but agricultural systems with wheat and other legumes, oats, barley, whatever, we never, we never burn those during the cropping season. So one of the first things we need to look at is, let's, how can we combine the traditional knowledge with the agricultural knowledge and modern technology to try and go forward? Um, and that's a really cool journey. And um, I'm not an Aboriginal person, but I'm really loving, really loving and very appreciative of the elders that I chat to and the community members that are also loving getting to eat together um, and going back to some of their traditional foods. It's, it's, um, it's really interesting to, uh, to see the, the meeting of the traditional knowledge and the science coming together to, um, you know, I guess, rediscover some of the things that we probably should have or someone should have looked into a long time ago <laughs> to, uh, to figure out, you know, there was people already living here. We should have asked them how it was possible to live here rather than just completely transplanted a different system on top of them. Um, look, I think we're running out of time. So I, I would just like to thank you for joining us on the show. I really was interesting to hear about your work and uh, you know, the, uh, the direction that you've, that you've taken your research in um, and I hope we will hear more from you in the future and hopefully you know in the not too distant future we'll see some of this stuff in the shop so we can all taste it. Yeah absolutely have it with some Kwandong jam it's really delicious. <laughs> I, I will do my best to, to seek it out and thanks thanks again for joining us on the show Angela. Yeah thanks Stu it's been an absolute pleasure.
listening to Lost in Science. My name is Chris and my guest today is quantum physicist Kyla Adams. Kyla is a master's student at the University of Melbourne and she's one of the speakers of this year's virtual pint of science and she's with us today to tell us about the bizarre properties of quantum liquids. Kyla, welcome to Lost in Science. Hello, thank you for having me. Now, regular listeners may know that I've got a bit of a physics background myself, but I don't know much about quantum liquids, so I've got a lot to learn from you, but um, I think we should start with the basics. How would you explain what quantum physics is? Um, so say quantum physics is essentially the study of the very small, uh, so small that just the no normal rules no longer apply, and particles start to behave in ways that go against our normal sort of everyday scale expectations. So at the small scale, the particles and atoms can be thought of a probability or a smear rather than just a fixed point. So it's like a little fuzzy ball of probability is now your atom. And because of this fuzziness, weird things can happen, like the quantum tunneling or um, quantum liquids, which is what I'm looking at. Great. So why is it to call it quantum? Yeah, so call them quantum because you can get... Um, Properties like energy or momentum, they can be quantized, put into these set values. So if that could happen in our everyday world, you could start with a, sing a single apple, take a bite, and then suddenly be left with half an apple or none at all. So the apple would then be quantized. Oh, okay. So it's like in the case, the half apple is, is the quantum. Yeah. So it's right. Um, all right. So how do we get that though to, to quantum liquids? So there's a little bit of a step. So we basically put these atoms, these balls of fuzz, into a um, super cool refrigerator, I guess, drop them all the way down to very close to zero, which is very hard to do. But then as you cool them down, these individual smears and fuzzes start to overlap. So you can start with these two separate fuzzy balls. And as you decrease the temperature, their fuzziness starts to overlap more and more until you can't tell them apart and it's just one big fuzzball and you start to get this quantum liquid this single object i thought it's quite different to the way we normally think of liquids because like a liquid looks like it's a a single uniform mass i mm. suppose but we know that it's made up of little tiny atoms bouncing around and bouncing off each other yeah so is what you're doing it's making it back into that single mass is that what's happening there yeah, yeah, it's pretty much what's happening. So the atoms, they're all they're all still kind of there, but you can't distinguish them anymore. To be like if all your water molecules just overlapped and you just had one blob of water, but it was the one molecule. Okay. It's, it's very weird to try and think about. Well, I guess that's why people like you need to study it. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so how cold are we talking here when you're saying cold? So very close to absolute zero. So a lot of these liquids are formed at nano kelvin temperatures which is 0.0090 kelvin which in celsius everyday temperatures is minus 273 so way below the freezing point of water is liquid helium because that's one of the ones that i've heard about as a weird kind of liquid that you get at really cold temperatures does that count as one of these quantum liquids or are you going colder than that yeah, so it counts as one of the quantum liquids. So it was one of the first ones that they were actually able to make in a lab. So helium turns into this superfluid at about 2.7 Kelvin. Okay. Moving close to zero, but not quite as close as some of these other ones. Right. And so what are some of the weird properties that you get with quantum liquids? 
one of the weird properties that I look at is what happens when you rotate them, when you start to spin it. So overall, these quantum fluids can't be rotated. If you try to stir it like you would stir your coffee and you get that whirlpool, with these liquids, instead of one whirlpool, you get, well, sorry, to start with, you do get one, but it goes in the opposite direction to what you would expect. How does that, so hang on, when you're stirring this liquid, would you, are you stirring it by putting a spoon in or are you turning the cup around, so to speak? Um, more like turning the cup around. Okay. Yeah. And so yeah, you turn the cup and then the liquid rotates in the opposite direction. Is that what happens? Yes. In a, yeah, in a sense that is what happens, which is completely counterintuitive. But again, it's one of those weird quantum properties. And the reason it does that is because of a whole bunch of um, fluid dynamics. So the maths of how these, the water behaves, well, sorry, a liquid behaves not quite water. So you look at the velocity of these sort of atoms and you can figure out this rotational property and just a lot of hydrodynamics, so that fluid math. So it's it's a similar kind of, I suppose, maths that describe what happens to a normal liquid, but it just it behaves differently under these quantum conditions. Is yes. that right? Yep. Okay, so we if we turn it, we get one whirlpool going in the opposite direction. What happens when we turn it mm -hmm. faster? Yeah, so again, something weird happens. So if you stir your coffee faster, that whirlpool will get bigger. But if you stir your quantum liquid, because these whirlpools have to be quantized, instead of getting a bigger one, you just get more of them. So you'll have two whirlpools instead of a big one, or three or four, depending on how much you stir it. That is very strange, but I guess it makes mm -hmm. sense from this, this kind of quantum concept that you were talking about. These things, are they, have they been seen in the laboratory, this kind of weird behaviour? Yeah, yeah. So they've been able to see these vortices. The first one was less than 30 years ago, I mm -hmm. think, the first one. The first vortices were found because we weren't able to make these superfluids in a lab until the 90s. So the Nobel Prize in 1996 was awarded for creating this superfluid helium, like we were talking about before earlier. So it's still a fairly new field of physics especially compared to some of the other fields that are out there. Um, and what do you what are you doing with your particular research on this? Um, so my research is looking at spinning these liquids in yes, different containers. So instead of having it just sort of like in a cup, I'm theoretically, so just using a computer to put these liquids into a ring. And then when you put them in this ring with certain conditions, you can get them to start rotating on their own, we think. So without rotating the container. What, they will just start rotating? Yeah, so you can, so you change an external condition. So you can have these superfluids be magnetic, so they interact with the magnetic field. And if you increase that external magnetic field, they could start to rotate. Not because you're making it spin, but just because it's, we say energetically favorable, so they want to move because that's the laziest spot for them to be in. I mean, this is this is kind of this to totally bizarre and counterintuitive, but would this be able to make some sort of motor or, I don't know, I'm just thinking it sounds like a bit like a superconductor, but the whole thing is moving, not just electric charges and... Yeah, it is, it is very strange. And I think they might've been able to make the torus of superfluids in a lab. But I don't think they don't last for very long. Okay. Um, it could be, I think, probably less than a second, potentially. So at the moment, there's not really any application. Okay. But 
I sort of see this field as one of physics where we'll look at it and then see where it takes us. It might be have we might have one weird spin off of it later okay. on. Yeah. But it is, although it sounds weird, it is uh, from what you're saying. It sounds like it is consistent with the laws of physics that we know. They're just behaving in an unexpected way. So like, it's rotating, but you're not getting say energy for free, are you? Yeah. Out of this. Yeah. So it's weird as a sort of how we experience everyday life but in terms of like quantum physics and i guess the fundamental uh, building blocks of physics it makes sense and i suppose it's not that weird for things to be rotating at those tiny scales i mean we know that for instance electrons spin and orbit around atoms and this sort of stuff mm. and they keep moving they don't stop moving yeah yeah essentially the same sort of thing so it's just these atoms moving about in a certain particular way are there like applications for these that, that um, people are thinking about or that in your wildest dreams in the future we might be able to see? I'm not sure. I think potentially in some sort of medical physics because we do use like supercooled helium in um, some imaging devices. We do use like these ultra-cooled liquids in a couple of different situations, um, potentially in for, like cooling down rockets, for example, because they have to be cooled to then deal with the high temperatures. So I think... That could be a potential application, but I think it's very open still. There's so many different ways it could potentially go. Yeah. And are these things found anywhere else in the universe apart from in our laboratories? Um, so superfluids in general are thought to exist in neutron stars as well. So neutron stars are these really dense stars. They're about 15 kilometers in diameter, but like super heavy. So the weight of a few couple of suns inside this so a teaspoon of this neutron star could be a thousand tons i think so very very heavy and because they're so dense the interior of them is thought to be a superfluid because of different pressure properties and stuff like that it's they're hot but they can be cool in the interior okay again another one of those weird contradictions um but yeah so they're thought to exist in outer space just naturally uh, so I suppose then understanding the properties of these superfluids can help us understand what's happening inside neutron stars. Yeah, so some people um, investigate some observations of neutron stars that we see. So we see some weird, again, some weird things coming from them that could be a result of the superfluid. And then if we can match the observations to the superfluid theory, it could then improve our understanding of superfluids through that roundabout way. Excellent. Um, so for yourself, and is it these weird properties that you like about superfluids? Like what is it that, that you think is the most uh, exciting thing or that you think people need to know? I think the most exciting thing is the vortices. I quite like them. So every time I look at my coffee in the morning and stir it, I think of these vortices, like that sort of everyday link, I guess, like the macro scales, what we see every day can be replicated at this super tiny scale. Fantastic. Well, look, thank you very much, Kyla, for, for sharing your work with us and sharing a bit about the, um, the mysteries and magic of quantum liquids. Thank you. It's been great.
that's all we've got time for for this week and we are rapidly running out of time. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook. We are broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. And if you would like to tune in next week, Chris, Stu and Claire will get locked in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.